Please turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. We're continuing our series looking at the promise of the gospel and seeing Christ throughout all of Scripture. As you turn there, let me just kind of repeat something Ben said earlier about next week. You know, next week is our baptismal service, and we'll be holding the, the service, the first part of at least, here in this room during the 9 o'clock service which means that people who are normally part of the 9 o'clock service will be joining us here uh, for the, the second service, which means we're going to be a little bit more crowded next week. And so uh, my encouragement to you is, is uh, to kind of think about that next week. And for those of us who are able and are part of uh, the regular Bethany family, that we'd be, just be sure to kind of scoot in and, and make sure that uh, the, the sides are easily accessible for people with special needs or um, parents with uh, young children or uh, visitors, those who may be visiting us for the first time. You can imagine uh, how intimidating it might be to, to come in and uh, see a very full-looking room and, and hard to kind of figure out uh, just normally where to go, but even more in a room with a lot of people. So just, uh, just be mindful of that next week and, and be sure to come for our baptismal service at night. Be, be sure to come and be a part of that and that will start in this room as well. So we look forward to that uh, by God's grace next week. Well, hopefully you're at Genesis 12 by now. At Genesis 12, we looked at uh, Genesis 3 last week and kind of saw how Genesis 3 uh, fit into Scripture and specifically verses uh, chapters 1 through 11 of Genesis. And so we're going to look at the first three verses of Genesis chapter 12 this morning and then see how those verses fit into chapters 12 through 50 and, and really fit into all of Scripture. These are, these three verses are some of the most important verses, the most foundational verses in all of Scripture to understanding our relationship with God. Everything else that follows in Scripture builds upon these three verses, and so I hope that we're able to unpack that this morning. Our faith is strengthened because of that. Please stand with me if you're able to in honor of God as we read his word together. Genesis chapter 12, uh, beginning in verse 1, reading from uh, the English Standard Version. And we've just come through Genesis 11, and they've traced the descendants of Shem, and specifically uh, now he's come to uh, Shem's descendant Terah and Terah's son Abram. Verse 1 of Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred, your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You may be seated. May God encourage, strengthen, teach us through his word this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, thanks for these verses. Thank you for the gospel truths revealed in them. We pray that our hearts would be open to receive your truth and that we would be obedient to you, not on our own strength, but the strength that you supply, that we'd be obedient to you because of our great love for you through our faith in your son Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. When I was in college, my roommate was a movie reviewer for the campus newspaper. 
And this was a, a great gig for him. He liked movies a whole bunch, and he liked inviting girls to go see movies with him. And it was, you know, quite the line to be able to walk up to a girl and say, hey, uh, we've got these free advance passes to this, uh, you know, big blockbuster, this romantic movie this fall, and I need a female perspective to help me. Uh, you want to join me and we'll go to this movie together? Uh, it was a great, uh, great line for him. But uh, as his roommate, there were benefits for me as well. Whenever it was a, a movie that wasn't that great, uh, I would get invited to go along with him. And maybe in the 19, late 1990s, you heard of the Disney movie with Robin Williams called Flubber. I got to go see that in advance. Uh, another movie that he invited me to go see where it was one evening, and, and he, I guess, hadn't been able to find anyone to go with him. And so he, he comes and says, hey, uh, Daniel, I'm going to the screening of an action movie. It's, it's called Hard Rain with Christian Slater and Morgan Freeman. You want to go with me? Uh, okay. So we go to the theater and sit down. And, and here's the movie that, that unfolds as best as I can remember it. Uh, it's been 15 years or whatever. But here's, here's kind of the, the movie that I, that I saw on the screen. It, uh, it begins with the Christian Slater character and his friend in this armored truck, and their job is to go from town to town and collect the, the cash reserves of these, these little banks, and there's this big rain coming, and the roads are going to be untravelable, and so before that takes place, they're trying to get the money out of the banks, and so they're, they're traveling along doing their thing, and suddenly there's the Morgan Freeman character has appeared on screen. And he's robbing this armored truck. And it kind of happened quickly. And I thought, this, you know, this movie seems a little disjointed. But that happens. And then the very next scene, suddenly uh, Christian Slater is in a prison. And this girl that I, we haven't seen before is trying to rescue him as the water in this, in this uh, prison cell rises. And then the, the scene cuts away very quickly to... Uh, like a bunch of people on jet skis. And I kind of look at my roommate and I said, this, this makes no sense. He says, yeah, I know. And, and there's this murmur all over the theater, you know, what's going on? It's kind of like whenever my sermon starts to drag. And, you know, there's this kind of murmur across the, uh, the auditorium. And, um, and you know, 30 seconds go by and the lights go up in the theater. This woman walks to the front of the, the theater very apologetically. Well, there's been a problem, she informs us. The the movie was spliced together incorrectly. Our reels are all mixed up. And so, you know, it's these, these individual scenes that, that, uh, that together make no sense because you have no sense of the overarching story. And so, so uh, she goes, just give us five minutes. And so five minutes go by and ten minutes go by, and half an hour, an hour. And she comes back and she goes, we don't know how this movie fits together. Um, <laughs> We don't understand what's going on here, and so we're canceling the screening. Okay. As I mentioned last week, sometimes uh, we approach Scripture, and specifically the Old Testament, like that movie. We open up to 2 Samuel 14, and there's the story of Absalom. Or we open up to another section of Scripture, and there's the story of David and Goliath. And we open up to another section of story, and there's Moses the Israelites crossing the Red Sea, and we see these stories as, as individual little stories, as, as scenes that are, that, are, that are their own little story, and, and that's not how those stories are supposed to function. Those stories are scenes that are part of, a, of an overarching story. 
that are part of a, a grand story, the, the grand story of, of God's redemption. And, and whenever we, we come to individual sections of Scripture and just read them as, as sections that stand on their own, we're, we're like me in that movie theater trying to make sense of this movie. And, and it doesn't make sense because it's supposed to be part of a, of a bigger story. I never saw Hard Rain in the right order, but my roommate told me it wasn't that great even put together correctly whenever he went back and, and saw it. But, but the story of, of Scripture is a grand story and a beautiful story and the greatest story ever told. As I mentioned last week, what I hope happens as we go through this series is that you have a sense, as you come to any portion of Scripture, you have a sense of, of how that story in Scripture fits into a, a larger story. You understand the, the larger narrative, what we call meta-narrative of Scripture, the story of, of God redeeming His people, and more specifically, that you understand, as you come to every page of Scripture, you understand the gospel more fully. That you would see the person, the work, the ministry of Jesus Christ. That's what I hope happens as we go through this, this series together. And this morning we're in Genesis chapter 12, looking at the story of Abraham. It's called Abram here in chapter 12, before or later God will, will change his name. But it, it's not an exaggeration to say that in, in these three verses of Genesis chapter 12, we encounter a scene that, that helps us understand all the rest of Scripture. The truths that we encounter here in these three verses help us understand the gospel as it's proclaimed throughout the rest of Scripture. You say, well, well Daniel, are, are you sure? Can you really say what we see in, in verses 1 through 3? Can you really say that's the gospel? Well, don't take my word for it. Let, let, me, let me read to you what, what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3. This is, a, this is an astounding thing that Paul says in Galatians chapter 3. Let me begin in verse 6. It says, well, well, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is what Paul says then in verse 7 of Galatians 3. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. Verse 8. And Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Let me say that again. Paul's words. God preached the gospel to Abraham, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. Isn't that profound? God says that what he told Abraham here in verses 1 through 3 is the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ doesn't start suddenly in the book of Matthew in the New Testament. The good news of Jesus Christ begins in Genesis. The gospel begins in what God proclaims to Abraham. And really even before that, we saw in Genesis chapter 3, the gospel really begins the moment after the fall. And then here in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, we see something more about the gospel, something more about the descendant promised to the woman. So let's, let's dive in here. Let's, let's see the gospel to Abraham. 
And as we dive in here, we're going we're to see some gospel principles. Before we look at those principles, let me just say a couple words about the structure of what's taking place here in these three verses. Now, remember things have not gone that well in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. After creation, things, things take a fall whenever uh, the man and the woman eat of the fruit of the tree and of knowledge of good and evil. They disobey God. There's In the midst of God's judgment, there is grace as he promises that there's going to be a descendant of the woman who will deal with sin's curse. Then we see throughout the, the rest of the, the chapters that this, this, uh, this promise is what people are looking for to remove sin's curse. There's this, this hope of, of deliverance from sin's curse. And, and we see that people continue in their sin and the effects of the fall continue to be played out in their lives. But in, in the midst of all this, Moses, the, the, the narrator here in Genesis, is drawing our attention to the descendants. He's saying, look, here's the descendants, here's the descendants, here's the descendants. Chapter 11, he talks about Noah's son, Shem, and his descendants. And then he says, and here's another descendant, here's a guy named Terah, and here's his son, Abram. And then suddenly God enters the story again in a more explicit way. And we come to verse 1 of Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you. Now I want you to see in these verses we encounter, in these three verses we encounter two commands and with each of these commands, there's some promises that go with it. And so the first command that God gives Abram is, is to go. Here, Abram is, is with his father's family. There's, they're part of this culture. And they're part of this, 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 uh, this culture that's a polytheistic culture, a culture that worships many gods. Many of the practices that they're involved in are, are just uh, horrendous, heinous, evil. He's part of this culture. And, and God says, leave it. You and I, many of us perhaps have been called to leave the culture with which we're familiar and, and go into a, another culture to go, to, to move away from friends or, or family. I've, I've shared before about how I was called from the, you know, God's country of Texas to be a missionary to the heathen in central Illinois and, and you know, it's God's grace and, sorry, um, God's grace and all that, you know, but uh, in all seriousness, you know, you think about uh, me as whenever I was in my early 20s, whenever we moved up here, and I had to, to talk to my new in-laws and, and tell them I'm taking their, their precious little girl 825 miles away, and we move, and then a couple days later, I'm calling them and saying, oh, and by the way, we're expecting your first grandchild. I mean, wasn't a very popular person, and so it's a hard command to do. For me, it's, it's even harder for Abraham here. There's this command to go, and then there's, there's several promises that God gives Abram as he tells him to go. He says three things. I'm going to make you a great nation. Number two, I'm going to bless you. Number three, I'm going to make your name great. And that expression, make your name great, has, has kingly implications. It's what you'd say about a king. He has a great name, a, a magnificent name. And then you come to the end of verse two, and, it's, and the ESV translates it this way, so that you will be a blessing. I think perhaps another way to understand this, and, and, uh, and there's another nuance to it, this is really actually a second command, a second instruction. The command is not just so that you'll be a blessing. The command is 
go and be a blessing. So go and second command, be a blessing. It tells him a little bit about this, several promises associated with him being a blessing. Number one, I'm going to bless those who bless you, verse three. Him who dishonors you, I will curse. And here's the last one, kind of the culmination of everything. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In you, through you, and this is the major point of everything, everyone is going to be blessed. There's a, there's a messianic aspect to this, as we're going to see. So that's the structure. That's what's happening in these three verses. There's commands with promises. And I'm telling you that this is the gospel. This is the foundation of the gospel. And let's look at some principles of the gospel that we see Abraham being told that help us understand the gospel that you and I believe. Because here's the deal. Not only are the individual stories in the Old Testament not just individual stories, but part of a larger story. Your relationship with God is not some individual story. The story of Daniel Bennett coming to faith in in God is is not just its own little book. It's it's part of a, a, a grander story. And if all I understand is my story, I don't even understand my story fully. I'm just seeing a little scene in part of an overarching movie, and it doesn't make sense apart from understanding God's great overarching plan. For those who say the Old Testament is of no value in really understanding the character of God or what we're supposed to do, think about Genesis 12. We're going to see that this is immensely important for us understanding who God is, who Jesus is, what his work and ministry are all about. So let's look at a couple principles of the gospel to Abraham, a couple principles of the gospel that we see here. Number one, number one, the first thing I want you to see about the gospel here is that God chooses to save. Throughout the first 11 chapters of Genesis, or really from chapter 3 through chapter 11, we see mankind in rebellion to God. There's nothing in humanity that gives us great hope that that humanity in and of themselves are going to be able to restore their relationship with God. Foundational to understanding the gospel is understanding that that God in his divine mercy and his divine grace chooses to save. Men and women do not earn their salvation. God in his divine sovereignty chooses to save. God, God decides to deliver us. Here, as we look at the person of Abram, we, we see a guy that, that in and of himself has, has nothing to offer. There's nothing great about Abram. He's, he's part of this culture, this polytheistic culture, worshiping all these other gods. And, and God's choice of Abram is not based on his worthiness. It's not based upon how great Abram is. Uh, Abram, we see as we think about the overarching narrative of Genesis, Abram is, is the beneficiary of God's promise to Eve to deliver humanity from sin's curse through an offspring of the woman. And so there's, there's tracing these descendants and God in his, his divine sovereignty tracing these descendants to Abraham. There's nothing great about Abraham, Abram at this point, but that God says, yep, that's my guy. It's God in his grace choosing to save. 
this, again, is a foundational truth to rightly understand the gospel. L- let me give you a couple of examples of, of how God reminds the people of Israel about this truth. You go over into the book of Deuteronomy, and in, in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 7, God, speaking through Moses, uh, says, hey, let's, 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 let's get a little bit of a reality check here, guys. Verse 6, Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, it says, You're a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And the Israelites could hear that and go, yep, we are the treasured people. God looked at us and saw how wonderful we are and said, that's the nation I need. I need those Israelites to be my treasured people. And, and uh, God, God says through Moses, uh, not so fast. <laughs> says in verse 7, it wasn't because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and shows you, for you were the fewest of the people. Well, then why? Why did God choose them? Listen to this, verse 8. It was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand. It wasn't about you. It was about a divine choice that God had made, an oath that he had sworn, and, and, and it's because of God's love that you were chosen, not because of some intrinsic value that you have, he tells the people of Israel. You go a chapter or two later to, to Deuteronomy chapter 9, and listen to what Moses tells the people. Verse 4, don't say in your heart after the Lord your God has removed you know, all the Canaanites out before you as you go into this land, it was because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. And it was because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is, is driving them out before you, God says. It's not because of the righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you're going in to possess the land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you, and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. There's nothing that special about you, God says to the Israelites. It wasn't like God said, I need the most righteous people I can find. Ah, the Israelites. If you're going to understand the gospel, you have to come back to Genesis chapter 12 and see see it in its infancy as, as God sovereignly, graciously, divinely chooses Abram. It's not random. It's part of this this. As he's traced the genealogy, it's not random, it's part of his sovereign plan, but there's, there's nothing in Abram that makes you go, that's my guy. The same is true for you and me. You come to a chapter like Romans chapter 9 in the New Testament, and you see that those of us who become part of God's family through faith are also being sovereignly chosen by God as part of his divine mercy. Bethany Community Church, understanding this gospel truth that God chooses sovereignly, divinely, out of love should stop a lot of silliness on our part. You know, sometimes I hear expressions like, um, I know that I'm valuable because, because Jesus died for me. You have to be careful what you mean by that. 
Are you saying, I was this valuable object and therefore Jesus died for me? I mean, it was like Jesus was going around to garage sales and he saw me and he's like, oh man, all this other junk, but man, that's like this treasured possession. I'm going to pay whatever it takes to get this, this diamond that's garage sale. No. <laughs> or is it more, and this is the right way to understand it, I have value because Jesus died for me in the sense that God takes this lump of nothing and infuses value in it because now I become this worshiper of God by, by God's divine grace. You see the difference? It wasn't God said, uh, that wretched creature, Daniel Bennett, I, I need someone like him. I, I need this guy to worship me who's, who's that awesome. I, I need this socially awkward person. That's what I'm looking for. Um, that's my guy. Or did, did God say, I'm going to take you know, a wretch like Daniel and turn him into a worshiper of God. God chooses to save. It's an amazing gospel truth. and It should create a great deal of humility in us. Uh, reading this, this week, a uh, Again, a, a little quote by, by G.K. Chesterton in his book, Orthodoxy. And uh, he, he tells about this, this conversation he was having with a publisher. And they're walking along the street. And a publisher said this statement. His publisher said, um, he's talking about some guy. He says, that man will get on in life because he believes in himself. G.K. Chesterton said, what? He says, well, that guy will get on because he believes in himself. G.K. Chesterton said, that's ridiculous. The men who really believe in themselves are all in lunatic asylums. And the publisher said, well, not all of them. And Chesterton said, well, well, sure, not all of them. He goes, but if you consulted your business experience instead of your, your ugly individualistic philosophy, you would know that believing in himself is one of the commonest signs of a rotter. Actors who can't act believe in themselves. Debtors who won't pay their bills believe in themselves. Complete self-confidence is not merely a sin. Complete self-confidence is a weakness. The publisher said, well, if a man is not to believe in himself, then what is he to believe? And Chesterton said, well, I'm going to go home and write a book about it. <laughs> and orthodoxy was the result of that conversation. Believe in yourself. I, I wrote this down, the story, and, and this morning I was, I was walking uh, backstage here. As I walked by, I saw this uh, little um, uh, book from a, a local uh, school, like a yearbook, and I opened it up, and, and I was just kind of flipping through it. And uh, I saw this little, you know, those senior notes that, that, that parents give to each other. And the first one that I saw said, uh, as a, a parent to a senior graduate, it says, um, it says, uh, we know you're going to do well because you believe in yourself. <laughs> I thought, how funny. <laughs> that, that idea, just believe in yourself. Just, just have, have a sense of your own self-worth. And, and uh, there's certainly this, this understanding that we understand that God uh, gives us worth because we become God worshipers. But the idea that in and of myself I have this intrinsic value is, is a lie. And it's a lie that the gospel corrects. And we see it here in the beginning in Genesis 12. God sovereignly chooses to save. A second truth of the gospel we see here at the beginning is that, that God promises a kingdom. You come to uh, Genesis 12 and you look at how God is, is dealing with, with uh, Abram and, 
And he begins not by saying, here's what you need to do but, uh, in order for me to, to, to bless you, but he, he just begins with, with these promises. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm gonna, he, he makes this promise to Abraham. This promise that God makes, by the way, is renewed in a covenant. You know what a covenant is? I think sometimes in our culture we misunderstand covenant because you and I deal in a world of contracts. Uh, contracts are, are agreements that, that people make with one another or businesses make with one another or businesses make with an individual that, that really aren't based on relationship. I was reading a story this, this past week again about a, a bank that had entered into a contract with an individual and the, the individual was, was not uh, keeping their, their terms of the contract with this, this mortgage and so the bank was going to foreclose on their home and the judge had the parties appear before him and he said, okay, now he told the bank, produce the, the mortgage agreement or produce the, the document that says you own this loan and they couldn't do it and so the judge said, well, I can't give you their home and so he just awarded the home to this, this couple, $460,000 just wiped off the books and said, it's your home. That's a contract. This, this couple and the bank, they had no relationship. You enter into contracts all the time. There's no relationships with the people that you're entering these contracts with. You have a, a cell phone contract, and you don't know the, the people that you've signed this contract with. It's, it's just, it's business, nothing personal. A covenant is something much different. A covenant formalizes the relationship between two individuals. It defines a relationship between two individuals. And it describes the penalty of, of breaching that relationship. I didn't enter into a, a contract with Whitney whenever we got married. I, I entered into a, a covenant relationship. I, I committed to say, this is, this is what our relationship looks like. This is how we're going to relate to one another. This is what I'm going to do for you as, as a husband. And, and it wasn't like I, I suddenly met her and then we had this, this covenant. We had this relationship and I said, okay, now let's, let's def we both said, now let's define this relationship differently. Let's enter into a covenant relationship with one another in the presence of God and, and here's how we're going to relate to each other. That's what a covenant is. And God promises Abraham something here and he promises by extension the rest of humanity something, and he doesn't do it through a, a contract, he do it, does it through a covenant. And if you're going to understand the Old Testament, you have to understand this idea of covenant. There's a covenant that God makes with Noah, there's a covenant he makes with Abraham, there's a covenant he makes with David, there's a covenant that he calls the new covenant. All these covenants from, from Abraham on build upon this promise that he makes to Abraham, a promise of a kingdom, a kingdom that's going to restore to things to the way they were before the fall. And look at the text, look at Genesis 12, and you'll see there's, there's a couple aspects of this kingdom. First of all, you need a place to put a kingdom. So what is there? There's land that's promised as part of this kingdom. Go to the, a land that I'm going to give you. I'm going to show you and give you this land. A land needs people to be a part of it. And so he says, go and I'm going I'm to make you into a great nation. There's going to be this, this seed. There's going to be this, again, it's this idea of descendants and that we began in Genesis chapter 3. And so there's going to be people that populate this kingdom. There's going to be a place. There's going to be this kingdom of people. And there's going to be a specific descendant. We'll talk about that in a moment. And he says the third thing is, is uh, you're going to be a blessing. So there's, there's land. There's descendants. 
and there's blessing. The blessing, we're going to come back to this, but the blessing isn't just some, you know, blessing for you alone, for you and your descendants alone. It's a blessing that's going to have international implications. He promises this kingdom. He promises this kingdom. And he promises it through Abraham. There's going to be a restoration of the kingdom that takes things back to the way they were before the fall. God makes a promise, and it's a promise of a kingdom. Here's the third thing about the gospel we see. The third thing is that, that God invites you to enter this kingdom by faith. We sometimes have a very wrong understanding of, of how God related to people in the Old Testament. We think, okay, in the New Testament or in the, the age of the church, uh, we have a relationship with God by faith. I want to have a relationship with God, and so all it takes is having, having faith with God, and faith, faith in Jesus, and, and that's how I have a relationship with God. But the, in the Old Testament, we think wrongly, they had to work. They enter into relationship with God by, by working for it. We get it by faith, they had to work. That's not what's happening here, is it? And think about what happened in Genesis 3 that we looked at last week. Adam and Eve sin, and God didn't appear to them and go, guys, man, you blew it. And I, I'm going to be honest, I am I'm pretty upset. I'm really ticked off at you guys. And I don't know what we're going to do. I'm out of here. In fact, I'm, I'm so angry I can't talk to you right now. And you guys, you figure something out. You figure out some way to restore this relationship. When you've got an idea, come back to me and we'll talk. That's not what he says. First words. The first, the first instructions that he gives, the first judgment that he gives, there's, there's grace. He goes, you know what? I'm going to deal with this. You're not going to deal with it. I'm going to deal with it. Now we come to Genesis chapter 12, and, and God doesn't say to Abram, he doesn't say, look, uh, part of this culture that's not worshiping me in the way that I want it to. I need something from you. I need you to figure out a way to, to appease me, to, to make me happy. I need, I need you to figure out a way to, to achieve righteousness. And when you've got that figured out, then, then I, I, I want you to, uh, to try to approach me after you have that. Turn over a couple chapters to Genesis chapter 15. We're in Genesis chapter 12. Turn over to Genesis chapter 15. Something very remarkable takes place. It says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram says, Look, God, I don't know. In Genesis chapter 12, he didn't say Genesis chapter 12, but earlier, when I was 75, you, you made these promises to me. Now I'm in the 90s, and what's going to happen? These promises were dependent upon an offspring, a, a descendant, and that's not taking place. 
He says, maybe, maybe you just meant this figuratively. The heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And, and Abram said, behold, you've given me, this is verse 3, you've given me no offspring. A member of my household will be my heir. Verse 4, behold, the word of the, of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and, and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. And, and then we see this very key verse. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abram, like you and like me, had a need for God's righteousness. He was a fallen man like you and I are fallen men and women. He had a need for God's righteousness, and he could not obtain that righteousness on his own. And so God made a promise to Abram. Abram believed that promise, and God counted that faith as righteousness. A righteousness that was going to be based upon Abram's descendant, Jesus Christ. How was Abram saved? By works? By faith. By some vague faith? No. By a faith in a coming descendant, Jesus. That's what Paul told us in Galatians chapter 3. It's what we see here in, also in, in Romans chapter 4. In Romans chapter 4, uh, Paul would say this. He'd say, what shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. But to the one, or and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. The gospel is not something God just invented in the New Testament. God didn't just say, man, this works thing isn't working out. Uh, boy, I, I think we're going to try faith now. Our story is part of an overarching story that has always been about faith and faith in Jesus Christ. Go back to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, by the way, we see that it's not just a vague uh, a vague promise of offspring, but you also come to Genesis chapter 12 and go down a few verses to help us understand what's happening in verses 1 through, th one through 3. Verse 7, it says, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And, he, and uh, that offspring we see in, Gen in Galatians chapter 3, the offspring is not just a, a bunch of descendants, but a, but a specific descendant, the person Jesus Christ that word offspring we've been tracing since Genesis 3. God invites you to enter his kingdom by faith. Genesis 15, where God declares Abraham's faith and credits to him as righteousness, occurs before Genesis 17, the sign of the circumcision. It occurs before Genesis chapter 22, when, when Abram is uh, willing to sacrifice his son Isaac on the Lord's command. And by the way, when you come to Genesis chapter 22, it's not just this, this crazy story of this guy being told to kill his son. 
Genesis chapter 22 occurs after Genesis chapter 12. It occurs after Genesis 15, after Genesis 17. We know that, that this son, Isaac, that Abraham is being told to, to sacrifice to God, we know that God has said, this is the one through whom I will bless all nations. And Abraham, Ham, Abraham, as, as he prepares, and, and there's that scene where he's prepared to, to, to he raises his hand, and he's ready to obey God, and he's like, man, I don't know how this is going to work out. I mean, Maybe God will, I know God can raise from the dead, and I guess that's when he, what's going to take place. But I believe that what God has said he will do, and I believe that through this son, my descendants shall come, the blessing shall come. So he's ready to do that. Genesis 22 doesn't make any sense apart from Genesis 12. God invites you to enter by faith. God doesn't declare Abraham righteous because of his works in Genesis 22. He's been declared righteous because of his belief in the promises that begin here in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Man, there's so much here. There's so much here. Let's go on. Um, number, the fourth thing that I want you to see about the gospel that we see in these three verses, number four, God desires to bless all people. God desires to bless all people. The Israelites could have saved themselves a, a lot of trouble if they had understood this gospel truth. That God worked through Abraham, not just to get the Israelites to be his chosen people, but, but so that, that there would be this, this worldwide blessing. This promise that he gives Abraham here in chapter 12, verse 3, is repeated several times just in the book of Genesis alone. You come to chapter 18, and he, he says, God's talking, he says, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Genesis twenty two eighteen. And your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Genesis 26, 4. I'm going to multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and give your offspring these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis 28, 14. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. And you shall spread abroad to the west and the east, the north, the south. And in you and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. God desires to bless all peoples. God didn't save Israel just for Israel's sake. And, and similarly, God doesn't enter into a relationship with you just so that you and he can be best buds. There's this desire that God has to, to bring all people, all people from all different tongues and nations and tribes into worship of him. There's a desire that God has not just for great quantity of worship, but for great diversity in worship. God tells Abraham, and your descendant, and specifically there's, there's one descendant, and your descendant shall all the nations be blessed. That's the gospel. And that brings us to the, the fifth thing that I want us to see about the gospel. God saves through Abraham's offspring. God saves through Abraham's offspring. From the very beginning here, as, as he sets aside a, a people for himself, God makes it clear there's a coming Savior. There's a coming offspring. And this offspring is going to be the one who deals with the curse of sin. And it's this offspring that's going to deliver. Galatians 3, again, Paul would write, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. God gave this inheritance to Abraham by, by a promise. A promise of a Savior. 
the promise of Jesus Christ. There was no other way to be saved apart from Abraham's offspring. You can't be saved through Ishmael's offspring. You can't be saved through one of other Noah's other sons' line or descendants. And there's a specific person by whom we're saved. And as you and I enter into relationship with God, we're not saved just on the basis of us approaching God any, any way we like. From here at the very beginning, we see we approach God through faith in Abraham's offspring. Psalm 47, God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people gather as the people of the God of Abraham. Luke chapter 1, he's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Luke 1, we're saved. God saved us from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us. Acts chapter 3. And all the prophets who've spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also have proclaimed these days that we're living in now. You're the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Here's what I want you to see, brothers and sisters. This morning you are struggling with the effects of living in a fallen world and you need the gospel. You're in the midst of, of a marriage that, that isn't honoring God and, 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 and you need the gospel to infuse that marriage. You need the person of Jesus Christ to, to redeem that marriage. You're struggling with a conflict with your parents. You're struggling with, with teachers at school and you're struggling with the effects of living in a fallen world. Your health is struggling. You, you're living in a fallen world and you need the gospel. You need Jesus. But what you also need to understand is, is this, this gospel that you need, this answer of Jesus isn't just an answer that, that suddenly cropped up. It's not just an answer for you. The answer for your fallen condition is and always has been the person of Jesus. Beginning here in the book of Genesis, the answer has always been the person of Jesus. The gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In your offspring, the promised Messiah, the person we now know is Jesus Christ. You cannot understand a movie if you simply kind of see it as a bunch of individual scenes that have no connection. Here's what I want you to see about God's grand plan of redemption. Let's talk about this just very quickly as we think about chapters 12 through 50 of Genesis. God promises Abraham land, seed, blessing. And throughout the rest of the book of Genesis, especially this, this theme of, of, of descendant, of seed plays out. Who is going to be this, this promised descendant? And, and the problems that take place in Genesis aren't just problems with individuals. They're, they're problem, problems with how is, this, 
how is this seed, this descendant going to be preserved, this line going to be preserved? And then as you, you go from beyond Genesis 12 through 50 and go into the overarching narrative of the Old Testament, there's a question of, of land. How is Israel going to get in this land that God has promised? Then there's the problem of, of blessing. How is Israel going to be the blessing that it's called it to be? There's a problem of nation. How is Israel going to be the nation that God has called it to be? All these things, these struggles we see throughout the rest of the Old Testament come back to Genesis 12. You and your relationship with God are not some little vignette that stands on its own. The gospel that's proclaimed to you must be understood in, in light of, of this overarching narrative. The people of Israel missed it. They, they said, well, well God is, is saving me because I'm so swell. And he says, no, no, no. It's part, your, your salvation is not a story about you. God's God's working with, with the story of David is, is not a story of David. The story of Moses is not a story of Moses. These are stories, as you look at the overarching story of Scripture, and you come back to Genesis chapter 12, you, say, you see, these are not stories about these guys or these gals. These are stories about God. The story of David is a story about God keeping his covenant promise. The story about Moses is not a story of, of some guy that, that, that struggled to talk and be brave and, and, and you know, finally became a, a decent leader. No, that's not what the story of Moses is about. The story of Moses is about God delivering the people. The story about Daniel Bennett coming to faith in Jesus Christ is not a story about Daniel Bennett. It's a story about God. story that began in Genesis. My ability to be called one of the people of God is a proclamation of the greatness of God. In and of myself, I have no right to be a worshiper of Yahweh God. But because of Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, where God says, I'm going to make a kingdom. I'm going to provide a deliverer, and through that deliverer, all the nations will be blessed. My name will be exalted through him. That's why I'm a God worshiper. That's why you're a God worshiper. Let's pray. Father, we, we pray that we would be God worshipers. We pray that we'd enter into a relationship with you through your son, Jesus. You'd give us the ability to worship you rightly. We pray that you would help us to be obedient because of your continuing work in our lives, the story of the gospel continuing to be played out in our lives through our faith in your son, Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.